friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. to go to God's Word, so uh, may I invite you to please rise from your seats, please, and let's take a look at Habakkuk chapter 3, and we will be taking a look at verses 13 to 16. At the count of three, let's all read together aloud, please. One, two, read. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devoured the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard and many inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to gather to bring glory and praise to your holy name. And we thank you, Lord, that today we could align our hearts and minds with your heart and with your mind as well. Our prayer, O God, is that you might give us that sense of awe and that deep reverence to just worship you and to just be focused on your word. We pray, O Lord, that you might minister to us and that you might speak to our hearts. We pray that the word of God would bring about transformation in our lives. We pray for the conviction of sins. We pray for repentance. We pray for holiness. We pray for purity. We pray for worship, O God, and we trust, Lord, that you will do all of that today, even as we depend completely on your Holy Spirit. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The God Who Delivers and the God Who Judges. Now, when you take a look at this passage, this actually uh, springs from verses 8 to 12. So it is somehow recounting the past deliverances of Israel. And we need to be mindful that there are really two reasons why God delivered the nation of Israel. First of all, God had a covenant with Abraham. They were God's chosen people. They were God's holy nation. And as a result of that, God delivered them. But there is a second reason for their deliverance. The second reason is God used Israel as a sort of divine policeman to bring about judgment on the wicked nations. And you're probably thinking, does that mean that God in the Old Testament was a God of wrath and a God in the New Testament is a God of love. Actually, there's no difference. I think I made mention of the fact 
that before God judged these nations, he waited for 400 years. So God was extremely patient with these nations. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But his patience had reached its limit. And so finally, the wrath of God came upon these nations using the nation of Israel. Now, having said that, we have to understand, however, that God is no respecter of persons. So while God had chosen and elected the nation of Israel to be his repository of truth and uh, the nation by which the Messiah would be born, they were still responsible and accountable before God. And that is why they had to live holy lives as well. They had to walk in obedience to the statutes and precepts of God. Unfortunately, as we take a look at the history of Israel, they had a cycle of highs and lows. And there were many times when they were into apostasy, they were into rebellion, they were into idolatry, there was injustice, there was perversion. And as a result of that, God also had to judge that nation. And so when we take a look at the book of Habakkuk, we find that God was telling them that he was going to judge them through the nation of Babylon. They were not excused just simply because they were God's chosen nation. Now, let me show to you uh, the two natural parts uh, of the passage that we're going to study. And so, let me show this to you. We're going to talk about God's salvation of Israel and the evil nation's destruction in verses 13 to 15. And then the second part deals with Israel's impending judgment through Babylon and Habakkuk's fear as well as trust in God in verse 16. So those are the two natural parts of our study today. So let's go straight away right now into God's salvation of Israel and evil nation's destruction in verses 13 to 15. Now allow me to provide once again the context so that we best appreciate what this passage is teaching to us. Now, if we go back to verses 8 to 12, we see some events which took place in the history of Israel. We recall how they were oppressed in Egypt and God delivered them. And what happened in Egypt was the Nile River turned into bloody red. They were able to get out of Egypt. They were able to cross through dry land. They, the Red Sea was divided into two parts, and so they were able to cross through dry land. The Egyptians followed suit, and they drowned. The waters collapsed on them, and so they drowned. And then we find them at the entry point to the land of Canaan, but then there was a natural barrier, which was the Jordan River. It was high tide at that time, because it was the season where there was rain and there were floods. And so the water in the River Jordan was very high. However, God performed a miracle. He dammed up the river somewhere in the north so that eventually the water went down and Israel was able to cross through dry land once again. And then right after that, we find Joshua in a battle in the valley of Ayalon. And at that time, he was crying out to God, 
that God would make the sun stand still. And true enough, God performed a miracle. The sun stood still and they were able to gain a mighty victory over all these nations. And so as Habakkuk recounted all of these details of deliverance, I believe that what happened to the people of Israel was they were greatly comforted. And somehow this is something that needs to happen. We need to remind ourselves of our past deliverances. And I'm sure that God had done that in the past. Of course, we're not talking about a war situation because we were never in a war unless, of course, uh, you survived World War II. But I think that most of the people who survived World War II are probably six feet below the ground right now. So what we can appreciate, however, is the fact that during times of lack, during the times when you and I had adversity, during times you and I had storms, difficulties in our lives, God delivered us. And what that tells us is that God is a faithful God. In fact, one of the things that blesses my heart is found in 2 Timothy, wherein it says that though we are faithless, God remains faithful to us. And we have seen that on so many occasions in our lives. Now, what, were, what was the reason for all these miraculous events? Well, they were done by God for the salvation of the people of Israel from their enemies. And God performed all of these things, of course, for their deliverance. God still does those things. Now, let me share to you a few stories which tells us about how God is able to deliver us even today. I recall there was a company of Christians. They actually called themselves covenanters. And they had been pursued by their persecutors until their strength was exhausted. They reached a little hill which separated them from their pursuers. But they realized that there was really no way out for them. And so the leader by the name of Saunders prayed a little prayer to the Lord, and this is how it went. He talked to his uh, companions, and he said, Let us pray here, for if the Lord hears not our prayer and saves us, we are all dead men. So he prayed, Twist them about the hill, O Lord, and cast the lap of your cloak over poor old Saunders, that's him, and these poor things, talking about his companions. Before he was done speaking, there was a mist, a very thick mist that rose up about the hill and it wrapped the devoted band of uh, servants of the Lord such that they were covered from their pursuers. And in vain, the enemy sought to find them while they were wearying themselves in the effort. And then, all of a sudden, there was an order that came which sent these pursuers in a different direction. So God delivered this band of men who called themselves Covenanters. There was also this other story from West Michigan Magazine it is part of a diary written by a boy who lived in Holland when it was occupied by the Nazis in World War II. And in his journal, this is what he wrote down in his entry. 
Last week, three German officers stopped my dad in the hallway. They held him at gunpoint and forced him to open the steel door leading to the basement. One of them ordered dad to show him the crawl space under the hallways. He said if he did not tell him where the hidden weapons were, he would be shot. Dad usually is not a great hero. In fact, this journal says he was even afraid of his dentist. I can relate to that. I have such a uh, weak tolerance for pain. Anyway, but this time, he, the dad, was not afraid at all. One of them cocked his Luger gun and held it against dad's temple. And then dad recited the Bible verse that was on his mind. And fear not them who kill the body, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You know what happened? The Germans looked at each other, they shrugged their shoulders, and then they left. Their steel heels of boots made a clanging noise on the iron stairway as they left the dad alone. Our God is a God of deliverances. Amen? He is a God of deliverances. I also recall the time we had this guest speaker uh, in the church that I was attending uh, when I was still in Manila. And... The speaker uh, belonged to a group called Open Doors. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Open Doors ministry. But the Open Doors ministry was founded by Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew was a smuggler for God. Now, let me explain before, uh, before you make some uh, wrong uh, ideas about this. Well, the situation was that in China before, the Bible was actually forbidden. And what had happened was there were many Chinese Christians who would get hold of a single Bible and they would, you know, take pieces of the Bible, you know, pages of the Bible, they would tear it and they would distribute it to the village or to the community of Christians. And what each person would do is what he got, the page that he got, he would memorize it, all right? And so each one of them memorized a page of the Bible because if somebody found out, if the government found out that they had a Bible, they would be arrested. They would be imprisoned. And so what they did was when they would gather together after they had memorized the pages that were assigned to them, they were able now to piece all the verses of Scripture Together. That was the situation in communist China before. Of course, right now, there's a leniency that's taking place, but they are still controlled by the government. Anyway, because of this situation in China, Brother Andrew had the burden in his heart to smuggle Bibles into China, coming in through a boat and going to a secluded area where he could distribute the Bibles. So there was this particular incident wherein the boat of Brother Andrew was about to enter already uh, the shores of China. 
But then there was this Chinese Navy patrol that came and was actually very near their boat. And they knew they were in deep trouble. And so they prayed to God, Lord, and prayer was very simple. Lord, blind them so that they will not be able to see us. And you know what? Interestingly enough, the boat just passed by, you know, where they were. Obviously, they should have been seen, but the boat did not notice them. God answered their prayers, and they were able to distribute Bibles in China. Our God is a God of deliverances. Amen? And so we rejoice in that. Because as I mentioned to you, in our own lives, we have experienced some kind of a deliverance. Probably there was a time when you and I had lack and we did not know where the money was going to come from. We, we did not know where the food was going to come from. But you know what? At the proper time, in God's perfect timing, the supply just arrives. The food just arrives. And we are able to see the goodness of God, the deliverance of God. And so this is the reason why Habakkuk was recounting all of these things. And it's always good to do that. It's always good to refresh our memories, go back in time, and try to remember the occasions wherein God delivered you. And you know what that is going to do to your soul? Your soul is going to be reminded of those things and there will be faith that will be generated in your soul. And we need that because in our lives, there will be many, many challenges. Now, in verse 13, it provides for us the reason why God delivered them. Could you please take a look at verse 13 at this time? It says, you went forth. For the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now, you actually find here a parallel passage. Now, notice the parallel. It says, the salvation of your people, and then the second line goes, the salvation of your anointed. They're pointing to the same group of people. We're talking about the nation of Israel. Now, the question is, why were they called the anointed ones? Or why were they called the chosen ones of God? Well, again, it was because God made a covenant with Abraham. And we need to remind ourselves, it was an unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. It had nothing to do with his righteousness. It had nothing to do with the good works that he had done. It had everything to do with God's sovereign, loving choice. And the same thing is true in our case. When we think about ourselves, why did God choose us? Why did God elect us? Why did God cause us to be, quote-unquote, His anointed ones? Again, it had nothing to do with us. There was no merit in us. There was no goodness in us. But God, because of His sovereign loving choice, chose us to become part of His kingdom. And therefore, we are sons and daughters of God, not because we deserve it, but because God chose to show mercy to us. And that's the same thing that happened in the case of Israel. And we find the promise, the covenant, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And I would like to read that for you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house 
to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. Now watch what verse 3 says. And I will bless those who what? I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will what? I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed or shall be blessed. So once again, we find here an unconditional covenant made by God. That God would be their protector, that God would be their shield. That if there were enemies that were going to attack them, they would be cursed instead. And so here we find the loving protection of God upon them. And once again, we see that as well in our lives. God continually guards us. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells that we have ministering angels who minister to us. They guard us. They protect us. They assist us. They help us. And we're not even aware of their presence actually. But they are definitely at work in our lives. God has sent them to minister to us. And you know what? If God could just open our eyes, we would be able to see all the wonderful things these angels are doing on our behalf. And once again, this is a testimony of God's goodness and loving sovereignty over our lives. But there's a second reason why God delivered them aside from the fact that they were chosen by the Lord. As I mentioned to you, they were chosen by God to become a divine policeman to bring about judgment to these pagan nations whose idolatries and wickedness had reached the limit to God's patience. And that is why God was going to judge these nations or judge these nations. Now, notice what it says here in the next verse. It says, you struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. It says, you struck the head of the house of the evil. Now, what does this speak of? This speaks of God's judgment upon the kings and the nations of Palestine, and he used Israel to perform this task. By the way, those things or those wars are what you might call a genuine holy war. Unfortunately, we had the wars of the crusaders. And I would like to be able to say to you that those wars were not holy at all. In fact, that was the bane of Christianity. You never force Christianity on people using the sword. Unfortunately, that is what the crusaders did. And you need to understand also that many of the soldiers that were sent to the Middle East at that time were actually mercenaries. And that is why they were cruel people. They were not Christians at all, I would say. But then again, it was called a holy war, and we need to somehow say that was not a genuine holy war. It was a war that brought a stain. It tainted the name of Christianity. However, when we go back to the history of Israel, that is the genuine holy war because that was ordained by God. That was something that God did to judge the nations at that time. It says here that they were struck. The figure in the Hebrew is that of a building 
from which the triangular upper part of the wall is ripped off and then the entire structure is demolished so that the foundations are laid bare. This speaks of total destruction on the parts of the head, on the part rather of the heads of these nations. Then it also says to lay him open from thigh to neck. This speaks about nakedness, which was a symbol of embarrassment. These proud, arrogant, rebellious, wicked nations were humbled by God. And that's exactly what happens when nations rebel against the Lord. And let me tell you, the nations will continue to rebel against God. And the climax of that is found in the book of Revelation, wherein it says that the nations will fight against the Lord. It is called the Battle of Armageddon. And by the way, if you will join us in our trip to Israel, one of the places we would visit is the Megiddo Valley. And it is a huge plain. Napoleon Bonaparte actually said, what a great place to bring all the armies of the world to war. And actually, I don't know if you read the Bible, but that is actually prophetic. That is actually going to happen when the second coming takes place. When Christ comes again, these nations would, would war, would come in war against the Lord Jesus Christ and against his armies. And then when Christ comes again, after 1,000 years, nations will rebel again against God. But they will be wiped out totally by the Lord. And so again, this speaks of God's judgment on these proud nations. It continues on in verse 14. It goes, you pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. What does this mean, you pierced with his own spears? Well, it means that God returned their weapons on their heads. Or maybe it means that their weapons were practically useless. They had chariots, they had veteran soldiers, they had shields, they had swords. You know, they were, they were war veterans. But you know what? They were defeated by this army of Israel, which was really not an army. When they were in Egypt, they were merely shepherds. When they were in Egypt, they were merely builders. So their victories, actually, the victories of Israel were won not because they had weapons, not because they were good in war, but because God was on their side. Amen? It's always good to be on the side of God. Amen? And so praise God for that. And so these nations were defeated before Israel. Uh, the weapons that they used against Israel actually boomeranged on them. I recall a story. There was this U.S. submarine called Tang. And this was during the uh, World War II where, wherein they were at war uh, with Japan and Germany, of course. And one time, the U.S. submarine was heading towards the coast in China. And they actually met, um, I think, another submarine from the Japanese side. And at that time, they had been in waters for quite a long time. They had spent a lot of their torpedoes. But they had about eight more, eight more torpedoes that remained with them. But they had to be very accurate with their targets. And true enough, 
all the seven torpedoes that they used actually hit their targets. And so, finally, they were going to use up their last and final torpedo. And so, they set it off, but unfortunately, it diverted. And instead of hitting the Japanese target, it went back and hit the submarine. It actually sank almost immediately. There was a boomerang effect. And somehow, this is a picture of what had happened to these nations. These nations wanted to devour the nation of Israel. They wanted to destroy and exterminate the nation of Israel. And yet, because God was on the side of Israel, they gained a mighty victory. So again, this was a picture of what happened. Now, we are told here, going back to verse 14, it says, You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. Now, who is the head here? Well, it speaks about the kings, of course. The kings, as always, were the leaders. And they were the ones who were primarily chastised aside from the entire nation. Now, one thing we have to consider. The kings at that time were not only responsible for the political state of the nation. They were also responsible for the spiritual state of those nations. Why do I say that? Because... The kings at that time also doubled up as priests. So they were kings and priests. This was something that was not allowed with the nation of Israel. If, if you were a king in Israel, you just had to be a king. You could not, you know, do the work of a priest. And if you were a priest, you could not be a king. You could be a kingmaker, but you could not be a king. With the other nations, however, it was different. Those who were kings were likewise the priests. So they were not only responsible for the political state of their nations, they were also responsible for the spiritual state of their nations. So if their nations were wicked, perverse, immoral, unjust, cruel, rebellious, idolatrous, it was the fault of the king. That is why here we find they were the ones that were primarily chastised by God, which tells us once again that although our God is a God of love, we must be mindful of the fact that He is also a God of justice. And this is something we need to remind ourselves. That is why I'm saying that in the 21st century, one of the greatest needs of the church is the fear of the Lord. And this is something I feel that is being lost amongst a lot of believers, amongst a lot of Christians, most especially because right now we have the inception of what is called as the hyper-grace movement. Now, what's the hyper-grace movement? Well, it's just a modern-day name for antinomianism. And basically, what it does is that it takes sin lightly. In fact, one of their teachings goes something like this. You must not be conscious of your sin. And the reason why they say that, the reasoning is, is because the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has covered all of our sins. So that part is true. Our past, our present, and our future sins are covered. And therefore, we are forgiven by God. If we have accepted Him as our personal Lord and Savior, all of our sins are forgiven, even the sins of the future. Having said that, however... 
We are never to use grace as a license to sin. Unfortunately, this is what the hyper-grace movement is doing. In fact, they say, even when you sin against God, there is no need to confess your sins. Even when you sin against God, there is no need to repent. And I find that rather unfortunate because God has placed within us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who is the agent of sanctification. And what the Holy Spirit brings about in our lives is a conviction of sin, an awareness that we are sinners and a conviction of our sins. Now, the intention of the Holy Spirit is to bring us into repentance, to make us confess our sins. And that's exactly what John says in 1 John. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Unfortunately, the hyper-grace movement is now gaining a lot of ground, most especially in the northern part of the Philippines. In fact, I have one pastor friend who is now very much into this hyper-grace movement, and I find that rather unfortunate. One of my pastor friends has also distanced himself from this pastor friend of ours because of this teaching. And again, what is lost here is the fear of God. What is lost here is a sense of awe before the Lord. And we need to remind ourselves, friends, yes, our God is a God of love. He is a God of deliverances. But He is also a God of justice, and He is also a God of wrath. If God did not display His wrath, then God would not be a holy God. And so again, this is what these verses somehow remind us. Now it says here, what these nations did to Israel was this. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devoured the oppressed in secret. Now what does they stormed in to scatter us? Obviously, this speaks about a surprise attack. They wanted to surprise the nation of Israel. They've done this on several occasions. But you know what happened? They were the ones who were surprised by the power of God. They were the ones who were defeated before these helpless Israelites. Now it says their exaltation was like those who devoured the oppressed in secret. What does this mean? The barbaric hordes were also described as bandits who were exalting. The word actually means gloating. They were, they were looking at the people of Israel and they saw them as wretched and helpless. And they, they were going to attack them in their helplessness. But then again, again, God reverses the situation because it turns to their own gore and their own bloodshed. And so once again, God delivered the nation of Israel. Verse 15 says, You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Now once again, what are we reminded of? Well, actually, there's just one event that reminds us of this. The parting of the Red Sea. The crossing of the people of Israel in, on dry land. And then the Egyptians pursue them into the Red Sea. The water collapses and they drown. All right? So this is actually what is being talked about here. You trampled on the sea with your horses 
on the surge of many waters. Now, once again, although we cannot identify with a war situation, we can still somehow relate to the deliverance aspect. Let me share to you a few more stories. A former president of Moody Bible Institute cited an instance of a pointed petition. In an article entitled, Harnessing Your Prayer Power, he tells of a missionary who was evacuated by a freighter from the South Pacific Island during World War II. The vessel had to zigzag through hostile waters to avoid detection by the submarines. One day, a periscope all right, appeared above the surface of the ocean. And the missionary said, that's when I learned to pray specifically. While the enemy was looking our ship over, probably trying to decide whether to, <coughs> to sink us, we cried, Lord, stop his motors, jam his torpedo tubes, break his rudder. And you know what? God answered that prayer. And this missionary, together with his group, were likewise delivered by the Lord. Here's another story. This is a story by a lady who experienced a mighty deliverance of God. Let me share it to you in, her, in, her, in the first person. <coughs> it says, 30 years ago, my brother built a small fire on the side of our straw, straw stack near the barn. My sister, sensing that this would lead to serious trouble, ran and told my mother, she in turn summoned my father who was working in the field. By the time he arrived, the flames were already out of control. We all carried pail after pail of water from the tank, hoping that somehow God would stop the fire. Suddenly, a strong wind came up, blowing sparks from the straw stack to a nearby stand of wheat and corn. Soon, the flames actually enlarged themselves and covered a huge area already. Realizing that no earthly help was available, we cried to the Lord for help as we poured what little water we had left on the blaze. We knew that only a miracle could save the farm now. Finally, in desperation, we sank to our knees and prayed as we had never prayed before. And the prayer goes something like this. Oh God, please stop the fire. Simple prayer. You know what? Something remarkable happened. There was a large cloud that came over and all at once it began to pour rain. Just as suddenly the cloud burst was over, everything was drenched. In surveying the situation, here's what they discovered. They found out that the shower, the rain shower, was exclusively confined to the property where there was fire. Outside the property, there was no rain. Now let me ask you this question. Is that God or not? That's God. Amen? That is God. And so they, it ends, the, the story ends. The lady says, once again, we knelt and we thank the Lord for his special providential help. What a gracious God we have. Amen? 
a God who watches over us. Now, we need to balance this once again because in the second part, we have to talk about Israel's impending judgment through Babylon and Habakkuk's fear and trust in God. So, turn your attention, please, to verse 16. So, let's read. It says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place, I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Now, what is this telling us? Just because they were God's chosen people did not excuse them or exonerate them from their sins. And so, because they had hardened their hearts, because God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and they did not listen to their prophets, there was no other choice on the part of God but to chastise them. And the chastising instrument that God would use, which, already, which God already told Habakkuk, would be the nation of Babylon. They would come upon the nation of Israel and they would be merciless. And there would be a lot of children that would die. There would be women who would be ravished. Many men would die in that battle and they would finally be brought into exile into Babylon. Just those thoughts actually brought shivers into the bones of Habakkuk. And that's why notice his poetic description here. He says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. He was just imagining this Babylonian invasion and he was scared. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place, I tremble. You know, you and I don't know what war looks like. But I recall a brother who just passed away a few years ago. As a child, um, he experienced World War II here in Cebu. And he would tell us there would, there would be times when the Japanese planes would be hovering around the island of Cebu and there would be a loud siren that would be sounded and they would start hiding. They would start hiding. And they would hear bombs, you know, here and there taking place. It was a scary time, he said. I also recall the story of my mom. She survived the Japanese war. And one time she, she was just walking and then all of a sudden there was this Japanese soldier that called her. And you know, as a little, little child, my mom was so scared. What is this soldier going to do with me? And so he, he, she silently, slowly went all the way to the soldier. And then the soldier gave her a doll. <laughs> what a relief that was on the part of my mom. But you know what? War is scary, amen? War is scary. And Israel actually deserved to be chastised because they had rebelled against God. Nevertheless, look at the response of Habakkuk here. I'd like you to pay attention to the latter part of this verse. He says, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Now the word wait here speaks about his trust in the Lord. 
And I don't know what you're going through at this time in your life. Maybe there's something that's deeply troubling you. Maybe there's, there's a sickness. I, I know of a sister right now who's struggling with cancer. She just finished with her chemotherapy. And, of course, she's hoping that she would survive this. But, you know, I, I know that some way, somehow, there might be fear in her heart. Maybe there's, there's fear in her husband's heart. I don't know what you're going through. There's something that you might be afraid of. And here's where the word wait is very important. You need to wait on the Lord. And waiting on the Lord means trusting Him. Amen? It means trusting Him. It means trusting the invisible. And in the mind of Habakkuk, he knew this. That although they would be judged by God, they would also experience deliverance from the Lord. In fact, here's what happened when we recount what happened in the history of Israel. They were exiled in Babylon. But only after a few decades, only after a few decades, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. The king at that time was Cyrus. And Cyrus issued a decree that they could now actually return back to the land where they came from. God Fulfill this promise. God delivered the nation of Israel. And here's where we see that we can trust God. We can wait on the Lord and trust Him. Because one day, He will make all things beautiful in His time. Amen. He will make all things beautiful in His time. Well, let me now paint to you a bigger picture. Because we saw God here as a God who delivers, but also as a God who judges. Now, the way the story started, the way, you know, the passage started was it started with deliverance. And then it went and segued into the judgment part. I'd like to reverse the situation right now and paint to you the big picture of judgment that hangs upon each and every soul here on earth. Whether you and I like it or not, there is an impending judgment upon all of mankind. And that is because not only has the nation of Israel sinned against God, not only has Egypt sinned against God, not only have the Canaanites sinned against God, but each and every individual, including you and me, have sinned against God. The Bible says, Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 says that because we have sinned against God, because we have rebelled against God, because there are idols in our hearts, the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon us. And the wrath of God ultimately ends up with each and every soul landing in hell. To which I would like to remind you the verse that we spoke about a while ago. That we are not to fear the one who is able to kill the body, but we are to fear the one who is able to destroy the body and soul in hell. And that is God himself. And that is why if we really think about what mankind, what, what future mankind has in store well, it's all about all of us going into hell. We're all hell 
bound sinners. But here is where I'd like to talk about the deliverance of God. We started with judgment. Now let's talk about deliverance. God saw our plight. The greatest problem that you and I have, brothers and sisters, listen well, it's not cancer. The greatest problem that you and I have is not our marriage problems. The greatest problem that you and I have is not our business problems or our employment problems or our raising up of our children. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is sin. And God saw that you and I were hell-bound sinners and that you and I had no hope whatsoever. God actually could have folded his hands and he could have said, well, that's your fault. You got yourself into that rut, so I can't help you. But you know what? One aspect of the person of God is he is a God of love. A God, in fact, of unconditional love. In fact, the issue that we have right now on Heartbeat is about agape love. It speaks about the unconditional love of God. A love that is able to love even those who are his enemies. And whether we would like to call ourselves friends of God or enemies of God, the truth of the matter is that you and I are enemies of God because we have sinned against him. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus chose to die for those who were his enemies. And that's why here, brothers and sisters, as we look at this multitude that we have here right now, let us remind ourselves that if we have already accepted Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we owe everything to God. We owe an eternal gratitude towards Him. Because if not for the cross, if not for Jesus dying for our sins, you and I would all be going to hell. But because Christ died for all of us and for all of our sins, we now have a hope that when you and I die, and we will all die, brothers and sisters, when you and I die, we would enter the gates of heaven. Not because we deserve it. Not because we worked for it. But because the Son of God on the cross said, It is finished. Amen. God has finished the work of salvation. So yes, our, our God is a God who judges. But our God is a God who has delivered us from our sins. And our names are written in the book of life. Hallelujah. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Now, I don't, don't want us to take that lightly. Oftentimes, we have gotten so used to the message of the gospel. The forgiveness of sins, Christ dying on the cross. Those are thoughts that continually pound our heads. But my big question is, does it deeply impact your heart? Today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. 
the Lord's table is a very special celebration. It is a celebration of that momentous event, event when Christ died for all of our sins. You and I stand on the basis of what Christ did. And that's why we cannot take the Lord's table lightly. We have to remind and refresh our hearts of what Christ has done. When you hold that piece of bread, remember this. It represents the body of Christ that was nailed to the cross. It was your body that was supposed to be nailed to the cross. And even if you got nailed to the cross, you still wouldn't be saved. Because the sacrifice that God required was a spotless, sinless sacrifice. And only Christ could fulfill that requirement. When you hold on to that cup of wine, remind yourself of this. That it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's what the Bible says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. What is the story of the gospel? The story of the gospel is the dying of the innocent in place of the guilty. The dying of somebody without sin in place of the sinner. And there is no one in this room right now who is not a sinner. And yet, Christ decided to die for all of our sins. Let's remind ourselves of that. And today, before we ask the worship team to prepare us, if there is anyone here who has not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, I plead with you, do so today. Do so while you have time. Because the truth of the matter is you cannot save yourself. Your good works will not save you. Because what God requires is a perfect life. A perfectly obedient life. And nobody can do that except Christ. Christ obeyed the letter and the spirit of the law. And why was he obeying it? He was obeying it for us. So that his righteousness, listen well. So that his righteousness could be credited to our account. We're not righteous. We are just declared righteous. And how did that happen? Because of Calvary. So again, if there are some here who have not yet accepted Christ, may you do so today. Because you know what? You can come and take the cup and the bread. doesn't mean anything to you. But if you surrender your life and you accept Christ, your name is written in the book of life, then that's going to be meaningful to you. So let's ask the worship team to come and prepare our hearts, please. And may we request our communion servers to help us distribute the elements, please. Allow me to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this 
in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's all meditate on these words and let's be silent for a while. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for sending Jesus to us. The only reason, Lord, why we can stand in your very presence is because of what Christ did at the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you are not only a God of holiness and a God of justice, but you are also a God of love. And it was for love that you sent your only begotten Son. And it was for love that Jesus walked steadfastly towards Jerusalem, knowing that his central purpose his main purpose was to die. Jesus did not come Jesus did not come to become a hero. Jesus did not come just to perform miracles. Jesus did not come so that he could gain from us. But Jesus came so that he could give his life for us. Lord, let that thought strongly impact our hearts. May we not take lightly what you have done for us. As we hold on to the piece of bread, may we remind us that it represents your body. A body that felt the pain, a body that suffered. body that took all of our sins. So we hold on to the cup. Remind us, Lord, that your blood, not just your blood, but your shed blood poured out into death is the very reason, Lord, why we're forgiven. And we have freedom, we have peace, we have joy, 
Our names are written in the book of life. We're covered and hedged about by your protection. You are our shield. And you are our fortress. Every blessing we have is because of the cross. And so we thank you, O oh God. Thank you, Lord, for grace. Thank you, Lord, for what you had done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake of the bread and the wine. Let's begin to thank the Lord with our lips. Thank you, Jesus. Begin to thank Him. Give Him praise. Let God's people give Him praise. Let's God, let God's people declare the glory of God. Declare the glory of the name of Jesus. Let's worship Him with our lips. Come on, brethren. Let's thank Him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We bless you, O oh God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, move in our midst, O oh God. Plant in our hearts a deep love for you. Because if we love, it is because you first loved us. Thank you. Thank you for today. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we could give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, may you use them for the glory of your name. And would you be so kind to bless and prosper us? Not because we're greedy, but because we want to bless your kingdom even more. Whatever has been achieved today, we give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks in Jesus' mighty name. We pray, amen and amen.